welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. I'm Ryan Rogers, and also a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode three, Almost Paradise. Recorded here in less than a paradise. It's dark and it's late and it's cold and it's snowy again on March 12th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to Snail's Sleepyhead and the outro today is Adam Age Vampire Cat in the Brain. Thanks again to Snail and Christoph Oaks for the use of his music. You can find his album on Spotify and Bandcamp and I dare you to listen to it as much as I do. We have some corrections today. We have a lot of them today. First, all of the Jurassic Park movies are a bit over two hours long, despite what we said in the last episode. I also mentioned in the pilot episode that Microceratus had its name changed, but that's not the only dinosaur that's had its name changed since the book came out. Although its name hasn't changed in subsequent printings of the novel, the Velociraptor Antiropus has been changed to Deinonychus Antiropus. Velociraptor Mongoliensis and Deinonychus Antiropus are separated by tens of millions of years, and are found on entirely different continents, and they are not the same species. And so, uh, even though we get a Velociraptor Antiropus that was found in America in the book, in reality, that dinosaur had its name changed to Deinonychus. There we go. And while I do not claim to be a Michael Crichton biographer, please forgive me for this next one. When in the pilot episode I said that I believed the book's dedication was to A-M-N-T, and I said that they might be Crichton's children from his first marriage, I was almost entirely incorrect. A-M is probably Anne-Marie Martin, his third wife, and active wife at that time, and T was likely his daughter Taylor, who would have been newborn in 1989. And my apologies, (laughs) way to get up on the wrong foot. I think I got that incorrect data from imdb.com and not ancestry.ca. So, hot tip, make sure you look at uh, the correct arbitrary website when you're sniping your data. Finally, I think I may have said, quote, costs outweigh the advantages, when of course I meant that the advantages should outweigh the costs, right? So there we go. I stand corrected. My apologies. We have some dinosaur news to move on with. We have an old dinosaur morph. Gondwana Research published the paper, quote, oldest dinosaur morph from South America and the early radiation of dinosaur precursors in Gondwana. This paper describes a new 11-centimeter-long femur that is potentially the oldest dinosauromorph from South America and is significant because this would, quote, narrow the biogeographical gap between Africa and Argentina during the early radiation of dinosauromorphs. The paper presents the earliest unambiguous evidence of dinosauromorphs in the Ladinian deposits of Brazil and sets the record that dinosauromorphs lived in South America earlier than previously expected in the Ladinian era. The Ladinian came before the Carnian, which came before the Norian, which ended in the late Triassic, uh, which is finally when we get into the more familiar Jurassic period. So that's how old this little guy is. Having dinosauromorph fossils in a Ladinian era Brazil connects chronologically with deposits in Tanzania and Zambia, suggesting that dinosauromorphs of that age were able to traverse from Brazil to Zambia at that time. So the continents have certainly come a long way in the past 240 million years. So what it's suggesting is, uh, obviously, Africa and South America were, like, touching. And dinosaurs could just walk there. The oldest dinosaur fossils excavated from the mid to late Carnian beds of South America, as well as Tanzania and Zambia, suggests a biogeographic correlation between the continents. In other news, we have a new hadrosaur remaining in South America, but moving from the very beginning of the age of dinosaurs to the very end. The Journal of Systematic Paleontology has published, quote, a new hadrosaurid from the late Cretaceous of northern Patagonia and the radiation of South American hadrosaurids. The authors have described a new species of Critosaurus from the Rio Negro province of Patagonia. The late Cretaceous animal is very closely related to Critosaurus known from New Mexico. The new species is Critosaurus australis, where australis is Latin for southern, so this is the southern Critosaur. The fossils are composed of well-preserved postcranial elements from subadult and adult specimens, noted as one of the most complete hadrosaurids known from South America. Uncovered from the Maastrichtian-aged Allen Formation, the animals may have reached 25 to 30 feet in length and was diagnosed as distinct by a very low jaw. 
Uh, Critosaurus australis's distinction helps construct a new picture of a distinct group of hadrosaurs in South America, composed of this new critosaur, and um, looks like a Bonapartosaurus and a Cicernosaurus. So good for them. <laughs> and we might have two new Tyrannosauruses. Uh, speaking of new species, there's been an argument to take a fairly popular genus, the Tyrannosaurus, and split the Rex into three distinct species. This is one of those March comes in like a lion and out like a lamb things where it uh, it came in like a lion and this is a big problem <laughs> or a big argument anyhow. The response to someone taking away some T-Rexes has been unpopular. An article published by Evolutionary Biology argues that T-Rex could be better classified as Tyrannosaurus Imperator and Tyrannosaurus Regina, uh, known as the Emperor and the Queen, respectively, to accompany the King or Rex. Reports suggest that few paleontologists are going to rush out and change the names of any of their T-Rexes. The idea of multiple Tyrannosaurus species has merit, but to split the very well-studied T-Rex into different species should come with a, quote, high standard of evidence, says the article. The author gathered anatomical measurements from 38 existing T-Rex specimens, and though admitting the specimens were difficult to classify, 26, quote, seemed to group into three types. One robust form from early in the Hell Creek formation with two sets of incisors in its lower jaws. And then two more types with only one incisor set. And the first is gracile, and the second is robust. And thus, that makes three types of Tyrannosaurus rex. The early, bulky Tyrannosaurus from the Hell Creek Formation is T. imperator, which split into the robust T. rex and the comparatively gracile T. regina. What do you think of that? I think the names are cool, and the arguments for the new species are viable. Should be interesting to see if it pans out. I know that the T-Rex scavenger or hunter debate lasted way too long in the public eye, especially because it sounded like Jack Horner just tossed the idea out there saying, well, we should at least scientifically consider if it were a hunter or a scavenger for the sake of due diligence. It's fine to think T-Rex was a great hunter, but prove it. And since then, a lot of research went and did that. So that's provocation that yielded the intended results, and we're all better for it even if the argument led us all to getting a scavenging Tyrannosaur in Jurassic Park 3 that was murdered by a Spinosaur with MMA training. With me for some fun this episode is Christoph Oaks. Uh, we met when he phoned me asking about air duct cleaning, but shock of all shocks, he was actually selling air duct... He was not selling air duct cleaning. He was instead holding my family for ransom unless I put his music on my podcast. So without further ado, and because I'm looking forward to seeing my family again, please welcome Christoph Oaks. You'll see your family when I'm ready. <laughs> I'm not turning over. It's like killing the golden goose. I can squeeze more out of you before I give them back. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you're going to be patient a little bit. And, uh, you know, we're going to arrive at an arrangement that, that's beneficial for everybody. But you got to hold off a little bit on the family there. <laughs> well, from uh, my perspective, it looks like you're taking good care of them. I've seen proof of life, so that's good. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, um, I don't want to do anything immoral. No, no. So from my perspective, from where I'm sitting here, you appear to be a cinephile. Yeah. Um, you know, when you don't really have anything in your life to devote your mental bandwidth to, you'll be amazed the sort of movie trivia you can retain. Mm -hmm. um, I went to film school. Nice. I worked in no-budget movies for a, a, a tick. Uh, I've done just about everything on a movie set something i still actively do uh i do a lot of writing about movies um yeah it's definitely something that is a pretty big part of just my day-to-day -day existence for sure in which i guess cinephile is a fair i don't i sometimes bristle at like specific words because i like don't understand every component of what that means yeah, like, it means am i obligated to go to like a meeting like do i need like a membership card to be a cinephile what even is that but, i think you have intimate no, think relations with the movie is how it works that's all. Yeah, that's that's a fair that's a fair descriptor. <laughs> which uh, which genre brings you the most entertainment? Definitely horror. Yeah, I'm definitely very horror oriented, and I think that's because when I was younger, my mother very very deliberately sheltered me from anything spooky or scary, which fostered this intense fascination with it. Mm -hmm. It just is kind of one of those huge backfires you have when you're <laughs> a first time parent, I think, because like you know now. Like, I, I couldn't be more ravenously interested in just the most vile horror movies that exist. <laughs> and you can probably trace it all back to the fact that they were kind of off the table for me when I was a little kid. Yeah, you gotta you gotta play down the stuff you don't want to. You don't want them to notice. You gotta play it down. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think 
I think I'll take a different tactic with things I want my children to like not get into if I ever have kids because that definitely backfired. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, yeah, you do writing. You've been dabbling in the, in the film industry and doing lots of good work in there. And obviously that's translated into being publicly fascinated with weird, gnarly, low-budget films that are delightful. And the type of stuff that like Mystery Science Theater 3000 wouldn't touch. <laughs> stuff that Elmira <laughs> Mistress of the Dark wouldn't touch. <laughs> what are some of the, I guess, of your favorite films that you've covered so far? Oh, man. Such a big question. It's really, really hard to... I'm just going to have to throw out a few with the caveat that these are not necessarily going to be like listed in order of preference. Mm -hmm. I think House, also called Hausu, mm -hmm. is a must-see for literally every human. That's a Japanese haunted house movie. It was directed... The name of the director escapes me. I'm sorry. He was actually like a graphic artist, which gives him a very kind of visual-centric slant on what the genre is. It's this movie about these five or six teenage girls who go to visit their aunt in a haunted house. And the girls all have names like princess and professor and ninja and whatever. And that like their names are their characteristics. Uh, but it's just a phenomenal movie. It's, it's very out there. It's very different. Couldn't recommend that more. I also am going to say that movies that are woefully underexplored in the West are the movies that came out of the Hong Kong genre cinema bubble mm -hmm. started maybe in like the sixties and then ended in the late or in the early nineties. You got a lot of quote unquote spooky films in there. These are movies that were a combination of comedy, martial arts and horror. And some of them are just so phenomenal. There's a bunch of movies in there that just the energy they have is just one of a kind movies like naked killer uh, Ebola syndrome, uh, and my personal favorite in that in that sort of lexicon is Mr. Vampire, starring Lam Ching Ying. <laughs> Mr. Vampire is about a group of Taoist priests who are sort of just a bunch of dumbasses, and, they, and their job is they're custodians of the living dead, these hopping vampires with wacky consequences, <laughs> and it's just it's just phenomenal. I I think every human should watch Mr. Vampire. All right. Is on the list then. There we go. It's in the canon. <laughs> Please do. Must must see. Jurassic must, Park. Must see. Mr. Vampire. Lam Ching Ying. He's a, he's a he's a master. He's got one eyebrow, and that's all he needs. So uh, those films sound like they probably did well enough in terms of like they got their exposure. They had a bit of publicity, whereas a lot of the stuff that you've, you've delved into are a little bit lower budget than all of that. Some of these films, uh, do they even get broad theatrical releases or do they just wind up in film festivals or how does it, how do they wind up getting around? Is it like a mixtape? Well, you print a couple copies and hand them around? Often. Yeah, yeah that does yeah. happen. It, it depends. So in terms of like the Hong Kong cinema bubble, those were huge in Hong yeah. Kong. But, you know, there's, there's these different kind of film bubbles and cycles that have popped up around the world. One of them that I'm particularly fascinated with is the German underground cinema movement. Mm -hmm. I'm actually... It's, I've been working on this for, for a long time, but I have been writing a book about this. Okay. What this was, was in the late 80s and early 90s in Germany, you had these kind of punk kids who had been exposed to the Euro horror, horror boom that had come a little bit earlier in the 70s and 80s. And during that period, Italy, Spain, even England to a point, a lot of these countries were putting out some of the most sensational bloody, exciting horror movies ever made. And Germany was basically a total non-participant. There were some movies that Germany funded, mm -hmm. but they didn't really produce any. And the reason being is that, for one, having experienced World War II not so long ago, the German appetite for domestically produced violence was not really there. Okay. And sure. beyond that, because the Nazis absorbed the German film industry in World War II, when yeah. they went, so did it. Mm -hmm. And that meant the new up-and-coming crowd of German filmmakers didn't really have elders to teach them the way. Yeah. That made them more artsy, but it also made them more pretentious. <laughs> and so they didn't really have any interest in something as lowbrow as a monster movie. But then there were all these kids who were suddenly having the responsibilities of Germany's war legacy heaped on their shoulders, and they just wanted to make a stupid movie, man. Yeah. They just wanted to make a dumb movie like the kids in Italy. You know, so these guys were making movies on handy cams, and it was a lot closer to what you're talking about. Some people like Christoph Schlingensief, who was actually more like a high art guy who lent a little bit of credibility to German horror at that time, he had theatrical releases. A guy like Jörg Butgerite, I'm sorry, Jörg Butgerite, he had 
a very understanding and brave producer named Manfred Yelinski who helped get his work out there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these other dudes kind of did the mixtape approach. Or sometimes they try to show him in, you know, the basements of bars or whatnot. And having your film seized by the cops was like a realistic risk. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. In different circumstances, demand different approaches for, for these people who are trying to make movies. And so there's not any one way that, the, that they got out there. In the case of German splatter films, most of these movies never had any kind of legitimate release at all. If yeah. they got out there, it was more like a mixtape thing. Mm -hmm. And if you're getting a hold of it today, more than likely you're getting a badly aged PAL VHS tape, or you're getting something more on the gray market, like a DVD burn, which is pretty common and not really looked down upon. Right on. And so there, there must not have been a lot of financial reward in doing these things. So you, obviously it relies upon the, the filmmaker's passion and real love for the art. Uh, does that manifest itself? Like you said, they're doing something zany and fun. It's, it's basically being fueled on you know caffeine and nicotine to just get it done. <laughs> does this kind of come through when you see the, the overzealousness when it comes to the some of the, the splatter? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say there's not, on, not only is there kind of no commercial reward, I would say that this is like a financial loss yeah. type endeavor that they more or less know going in. It's like, I'm going to struggle to get together the capital for this movie and it's gone. <laughs> and really all I get out of it is the knowledge that I did it. But you do see that attitude, you know, I would say like the quintessential perfect type of amateur splatter film is kind of made in a garage. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, it, it's very, very punk rock. The, the vibe is, um, you know, there's going to be excessive violence, but it's done in a way that you can tell is always kind of lighthearted and meant to be pretty fun mm -hmm. that really is the vibe yeah and i guess it's easier to separate yourself like it's not as how do i put this relatable when it's a little goofy and sometimes it makes it a little more palatable to me anyhow yeah yeah definitely <laughs> it, it doesn't feel as much like you're watching a snuff film it feels like you're watching rated r looney tunes yeah yeah, that's a better way to put it. And I think I prefer it that way anyhow. <laughs> Which, why haven't they made that? Why is there not rated our Looney Tunes? I guess Itchy and Scratchy is kind of rated our Looney Tunes. but They do everything but have the red come out of the characters in Looney Tunes. <laughs> that's, I, think, I think that's the next place to go. I think if you want to make Looney Tunes relevant in 2022, Space Jam 2 is not the way to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah, get it you got to give me Mortal Kombat fatalities. Put it on Adult Swim and it's all ready to go. Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> You know, I have to say, you came here to talk about a particular film with me. We wanted to talk about a 1993 epic movie that was based on a novel about genetically engineered dinosaurs that led to five sequels, was directed by a cinematic legend, and stars a relative of Bruce Dern. And of course, we're talking about the monolith of Tyrannosaurus-sized entertainment. It's Carnosaur. <laughs> what other movie could you be yeah, talking about not. that had that description? <laughs> directed by Roger Corman, starring Laura Dern's mum. It was called a, quote, mockbuster, and also the worst movie of 1993. If you were to describe I, Carnosaur in a nutshell, what, do you, what would you tell the uninitiated about that movie? I think it, well, uh, so firstly, I think it was just produced by Corman, I think. Okay. I think. But it's hard to say. He has his fingers in all these things to such, like, you know, he, he's really babysitting everybody on usually his productions. But, so if I had to describe Carnosaur, if you've seen Jurassic Park, and you wanted like it to suck way, 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 way harder. <laughs> Carnosaur is like a is a great, great alternative. Mm -hmm. um, it's also great for people who just like really need like hand puppets uh, in in their movies. Because the monster for most of this is like a hand puppet yeah. you can probably buy at the mall right now. You could probably buy if a the mall ones. is still open. No, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Like the the hand puppets today. Like, you know, $11 is going to give you something that puts this to... It, it looks as though they they had trouble pointing the camera at the puppet. Like, it, it feels like they just, like, when they did it, it didn't work. And so they tried not to as best as they could. And that was interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a Val Luton trick. If you can't give somebody a, mount, a monster that's going to, like, match their expectations, you just act like you are trying to be mysterious about it mm. and just don't show and they had but, uh, the dino vision, so they just work from the dinosaur's perspective. So it can lunge at someone, and it just looks like the camera's falling into someone's neck instead of... <laughs> Corman is just so crafty, you know? Yeah. 
the the old the old like saying about Roger Corman was he's somebody who can um, negotiate a movie from a payphone, fund the movie with the change he finds in the payphone, and shoot the movie in the parking lot outside the payphone. And the payphone's in the movie, yeah. <laughs> and the, it's about a payphone, yeah. <laughs> a part of me loves it though. A yeah. part of me loves Carnosaur. Yeah, it definitely had extraordinary moments. It really did. It it did. What do you have one? Because I got two I want to talk about real briefly. I got a, I have a couple highlights. The my favorite part was uh, there was a moment where there is the, the the sickness or the illness that's going through the clinic, and the camera pans from the doctor across the patients, and you see everyone laboring to breathe, and you know that they're basically harboring. Uh, a, a serious problem <laughs> and uh, but the way the camera pans across them the, the lighting obviously for some reason nobody had overhead lights in the whole movie in the whole town but there was the yeah. lighting the lighting the, yeah. the the camera pan the musical score the whole part there was a, a, a legitimate dread and it was extraordinary it was a really really well done moment and it ends on i think it was the pregnant woman at the end and uh, I thought okay. that part was, of all of it, like the most emotional I felt in the whole movie was, wow, that really, the, the whole town's got a real problem here. It was good. It's fun when, like, movies suck so bad that your expectations are just absolutely at the bottom of the barrel. So yeah. something that's, like, 1% effective just totally blows you away. <laughs> like, I think that kind of happens a little bit here. Do sure. we need to briefly explain Carnosaur's plot before we, like, get into this? I'm kind of taking the reins. I'm sorry. I've got us off off agenda, I'm sure. It, it doesn't hurt to recap. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So Carnosaur is, like, like the seldom spoken about i think we fair to say rip off of carnosaur jurassic park the imitator <laughs> that's right um it's a story of hubris it's a story of mankind getting too big for its britches it's this small i'm gonna say arizona or new mexico town i don't remember if we know it might have been utah i'm not sure yeah it's something like that and um this so effectively crazy scientist woman wants to return the planet earth to the, the domain of the dinosaurs because humans are messing it up, baby. We're just, like, not doing it right. <laughs> and she foresees a future, not unlike Greta Thunberg, where we are just going to all plunge the Earth into, like, some kind of Arctic nightmare and we're all going to die or something weird. So she thinks the best way to avoid that is to bring dinosaurs back. Mm -hmm. And she does this via biological experimentation. So they called like, it the... The fairy godmother of military biotech, I think is what she was called at one point. And she okay. specialized in pesticides. And then she was somehow snuck off to go and work on, like, genetically engineering a better chicken. Right. And then Which, she, that's how we start. Yeah. And then it, I think it turns out that she instead said, I'm going to use dinosaurs as pesticide to cleanse the world of its biggest problem, people. And put a yes. little bit of people into the dinosaur. I think, and yes. then and then uh, and then dust her hands off, lay an egg, and uh, be on her way. The logic follows. <laughs> At first, it's chickens giving birth to dinosaurs, but after a while, it's legit human women yes. giving birth. They catch to the dinosaurs. chicken flu, the avian flu, and it gives them uh, baby uh, eggs. Yes. To lay. Uh, <laughs> And wrapped up in this are a host of human characters we don't care about at all. Mm -hmm. Not least of which is good old Clint Howard. He's out there eating at diners and being gross. My two favorite moments in the movie. One, uh, one of our characters is sort of overseeing some kind of like uh, environmentally damaging uh, construction or what. I don't even know what the project is anymore. I can't even remember what he's doing. It's like... It's like the 1993 version of fracking. Or yeah, whatever. they were mining or something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so there are some environmental activists who show up and handcuff themselves to his, his you know, bulldozers and, and whatnot. And when the monster sh arrives yeah. to attack the hippies, one of them literally looks at him and he, he says, like, what's happening, my green brother? Yeah. And then he's just, like, immediately eviscerated. Yeah. Which is, like... <laughs> That's a, that's a special time for me in the movie that I really do like. I, I appreciated that he was a better activist and friend of the earth than Thrush, who, when she saw the dinosaur, got a rifle and started shooting it. And I was like, well, is that really in keeping with the, the tone of what these advocates are trying to do here? Cause she, it's pretty off-brand. 
What the bizarre part was is they were protecting it because it was a paleo migration route for extinct animals and it should be preserved and not mined. And I thought that's curious that A, you would know where they migrated and why it would be worth protecting it because they aren't migrating there anymore and haven't for tens of millions of years. But for some reason, <laughs> you can't dig here. It's a prehistoric dinosaur migration route. Thought, I'm going to go ahead and say dinosaurs were probably going all over the place at one point or another. <laughs> and if we can't dig where dinosaurs used to be, then we're just not going to be digging at all. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that, that that they were definitely, they probably just couldn't find anything else to chain themselves to a bulldozer about. <laughs> and they just picked whatever they could find. And as a consequence, they, they paid with their lives in the form of dinosaur murder. Well, it could have been simple, like, oh, the, the business laid off everybody in town or something easy, but they didn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, they, could, they could have found a simpler explanation for sure. But also, could not the whole movie have been simpler? Uh, not satisfyingly, I don't think. If it were too simple, <laughs> I think you you got to scratch your head a little bit. Be like, okay, because if it's really stupid, then you want them to die. That's true. I think there's a there's yeah. an unspoken karma that horribly bad people earn a horribly bloody death, <laughs> and so it's worth it. So my my other moment in the, in Carnosaur that I actually like quite a bit is one that's a little bit closer to yours in that it actually isn't one that I think was hilarious, but rather one that felt weirdly effective to me. Yeah. Um, it's where this, the, the fairy godmother woman, I believe she's like taking some like emotionally shattered man and making him walk into this weird, like laser tunnel to be eaten by a dinosaur. <laughs> and it's like the thing about that, that made it really work for me is that it kind of is an image from my nightmares. Like, I really have it, it, like somewhat frequent it, nightmares where I have like this image of this big backlit monster. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it was. Like the way they yeah. shot it was like on a level where I can kind of revert back to how I perceived the world when I was a child. It was weird and terrifying. Plus like, why is he in this like tunnel made out of lasers and he can't escape? Mm-hmm. It was like, it's, it's, it's almost, it was almost surreal. There were a lot of lasers. Like, it had a very Logan's yes. Logan's run feel to the... Like, it was, hey, this is what the future is going to look like, says people from the 70s. And, yeah. And I don't know if it was to keep the set cost down. You just turn the lights way down and have a couple lights in the background or what it was. But, um, yeah, it was an interesting high-tech office that they were in. <laughs> it really was. Uh, probably all of it was just done in one large warehouse space. Probably. And the darkness was there to hide that fact. That's probably the truth. One of the scenes that I yelled at the computer when I was watching it was when there's the guy that kind of looks like Dan Castellaneta from The Simpsons. And he is on top of the boardroom table. Yep. Holding the hands of another man who is eating a blueberry pie. Yes. And he's like, keep eating it. And he's like, guiding his hands <laughs> into his mouth and goes, yeah, it's a good pie. Thank you. And he's like, keep eating. Don't you love it? And then he explains yeah. that it has like weird uh, stuff that you wouldn't want to eat, uh, biologically engineered into it. Uh, and I just thought, why is this guy on the table? Why is he in this dude's face? Why aren't the lights on? And <laughs> just, you came all the way to eat a pie? Like, I don't, it, it was a whole scene where I was like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. Um, that was like accidentally like <laughs> David Lynch adjacent. It was bizarre like, and intense. Yeah, yeah. It's like like it's it was weirdly almost sexual. Like, why are you so about me eating this pie? You're like, this is not proper office conduct. Get off the table. What is happening? He was like a guest like, or something, or a senator. I don't know who this guy was, but yeah, yeah. He was it's trying to convince him. Bizarre. Well, there's a whole subplot of that they have to wait for congress or something to pass a bill and so all the crimes have to be kept uh, down low until bill is passed and then uh then it won't be they won't clear the deal and so they can uh i guess then it's okay to have murders on your record i guess in any case he was really rushing this guy to you know love what i've done here so that you can give us a governmental approval or a contract or something 
yeah, tricking me into eating like biological <laughs> weapon pie is not going to like make me yes. like push your vote through your bill through, you know. But yeah, I, that was that was particularly bizarre. Let it be on put on the record. Anytime somebody is pressuring you to eat it, quick, quick, eat it, try it, eat it, eat it, get it in your mouth. There's something up. Don't do it. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. That should go without saying. There's a lot of things in Carnosaur. That's a good example of it. But things were like, I think at the moment, I sort of give it a little grace with the expectation that they're going to explain later. But later never comes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so it's, then I look back and I'm like, wait a minute. They never gave me a reason why I accepted that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they just moved right on. And you're still a little agitated with what that was all about. I found when they finally got to the Tyrannosaurus and it started coming out of, um, out of uh, its containment, that when they used the force perspective, when they had the lighting on the on the I guess puppet or whatever it was the the, the animatronic that they had, it looked good. Like it really was convincingly large on screen, even though it obviously wasn't. Like it was convincing. It was convincingly big. Except like the hard part is when you get something like the big monster on screen and it's got to start walking around, and like mm -hmm. it looked okay, except for it was like. <laughs> on like a broom handle or something like that and, just, <laughs> and they just put like leather on top of the broom handle and jiggled it it like it looked okay it just had its limitations but they did a really good job with what they had because what they wound up putting on screen was convincing in a lot of ways oh yeah for sure there there was also like an iteration of the effect that if you you've seen like the people in like the big goofy T-Rex costumes that kind of bounce around when you walk. Mm -hmm. Like there is a moment in there where it kind of looks a little bit like that. Actually in the moment I talked about earlier with Laser Tunnel, like it <laughs> kind of does look like a big bulky bouncy costume yeah. sometimes in some of the shots. So I think that that is the effect sometimes is like a guy in a suit of of sorts rather than like a puppet. But no, like definitely uh I think so if you want to compare like the mockbusters of yesteryear to what we get today, they were just, they were better, man. Like your yeah. 1993 mockbuster, for one thing, digital video not really being an option yet forced people to work in film. And that meant that there had to be a level of experience and expertise that they don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. So like the movies that you get now, like there's the company, The Asylum, who really rose to prominence in sort of the dying days of Hollywood video. They got on the scene doing like Transmorphers when the Transformers movie came out. <laughs> right, okay. And they're doing, you know, they're like the mockbuster king today, but it's so much more cynical. It's like, there's no, it, it doesn't feel like they're trying to make a fun movie. It feels like they are trying to make the soulish cash grab yeah. that, that it is. And their, their stuff is all, for the most part, going to be like, digital effects done by like high school kids or something it mm. just looks it's just the magic's not there in the, in the way that it was back then and i think practical effects that fail at least there's like a creativity and there's like a getting your hands dirty practicality behind it that you don't see in the cg cg is just like that ah, failed you didn't pay any you know you didn't pay the right guy to do it where it, if, at least if it's a lousy puppet you're like yeah they tried good for them it works i guess you can Try different things, uh, you know, and with different takes to make it work and, and really do something creative with it. With CG, it seems like that, I mean, for whatever I know about it, it seems like that's lost. Like, it's just make something happen on screen. If it doesn't look good, ah, you failed, right? <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I, I will take practical effects and puppets any day of the week. And there's a reason why, like, Return of the Jedi looks better than Revenge of the Sith, you know? It's like digital effects age so quickly mm -hmm. like i think it was like the first the, the first independence day looks better than the new independence day the new independence <laughs> day just looks like an xbox 360 game yeah like those effects just don't have the the legs that practical effects do and again like even when practical effects sort of fail tom savini talks about special effects like a magic trick sure. and i think that's true and that's a good way to think about it. But there is like a charm to it. There's a performative aspect to it that goes a long way. Oh, yeah. And I definitely know. I, I mean, I'm a huge proponent. There's times when you got to use digital effects. But I, I am definitely one of those guys who would take uh, a rubber Muppet over like a CG creature, mm -hmm. you know, 
10 times out of 10. You can still light it. You can still do the makeup. Yeah. There's a lot of things you can do to sell it that, yes. I guess, employs more of the artistry in the industry that the other elements don't appear to. Practical effects are just so, so preferable for me. Absolutely. So as far as you know, was, was Carnosaur rushed or prioritized to make sure that it came out adjacent to Jurassic Park in that year? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think they, they probably had a little bit of a heads up. Um, Roger Corman, I like to think of him as sort of like a Cobra Commander type character. He just has like <laughs> spies everywhere. Right. And he probably, you know, I mean, he's a savvy guy. He's still alive. He is a savvy guy. But I think they probably sort of knew this was going to be the next big thing. And they mm. wanted to try to get in on that as quick as they could. So they probably were, were working on it before Jurassic Park really hit, you yeah. know? Yeah. I would assume. They would have had to Maybe have been, not, yeah. Because it was ready to go the same the same time it, uh, Jurassic Park was ready to go, I think. I think they could have released on the same day if they wanted to. I don't know yeah, if they did they, or had, not, but... they had it. They had it in the chamber, man. Like, yeah. it, was, it was ready to go. I also think that if they had um, waited longer, it would have been more like Jurassic Park. I think the fact that they hadn't seen it yet meant mm -hmm. that they didn't really know what they were imitating yet. Mm, yeah. So they did their best job. Um, but Carnosaur is a very, very different movie than Jurassic Park. It's yeah. not really like a one-to-one -one imitation the way that you might expect it to no. be. Um, so those are both reasons why I'm fairly confident that they were working on it ahead of time. But yeah, they, they I mean, they both came out in 93. So it takes a minute to put these things together. They were clearly rushing on it. Mm -hmm. But it goes to show that, I mean, there was a cultural understanding at the time. There was an expectation that the, the Jurassic Park was going to be maybe more than just a blockbuster. That it was, I mean, it has turned into a cultural phenomenon. It is defying explanation, bigger than the movie itself. It's way bigger. It's It, it changed things for no better reason than, I mean, dinosaurs are very cool and they looked very good. But it had to be more than that. There was something, they caught some magic in a bottle that day and it, it turned into something very special for a movie that has its problems, that isn't perfect by any means. And, uh, but it's still, still today is, it stands up as even better than all the other dinosaur films that have come out. And it's, uh, there's something to be said about that. I think maybe a part of it is just as simple as that logo, man. Like yeah. Yeah. the Jurassic Park logo is so perfect and so iconic it's like the it's the closest thing my generation had to the ghostbusters logo yeah you know it's a quick single graphic image that represents uh, the the whole ip and you can throw it on a t-shirt and it looks phenomenal yeah you can you know it's a you can put it on the cover of your book your video game your vhs release like that's all people need to see to know exactly what the movie is it mm -hmm. sticks in your head it's just such a perfect image. And it was on everything. Yeah, it was on the lunchboxes and it was on oh, the video yeah. games. You said you, you, you played the Sega Genesis and you played the Super Nintendo. and I played the shit out of them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I also remember seeing kids wearing the black t-shirt with yeah. the Jurassic Park logo. Mm -hmm. I specifically have a memory of like one kid, full disclosure, by the time I saw Jurassic Park, it was on VHS. I did not see it in theaters. Okay. But I knew everyone loved it already because I'd see kids wearing the shirts and I'd see kids complimenting the other kid on their cool Jurassic Park shirt. Yeah. So a part of me was like, at that time, I was like, oh, well, I better like fall in line and because this is the thing everyone knows is cool, you yeah. know. But like I recognized that this is the thing that's just unquestionably the cool thing right now and was for a couple years. Yeah, yeah. It was like... It was really huge. Like, so in '93, I was nine years old. It, it was it was very big. It was the thing every kid thought was awesome at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. In terms of Sega Genesis versus Super Nintendo, it also I mean that was a polarizing time. I don't know if you. <laughs> it was, were in it was on Pepsi that. and Coke before the rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! It it was heated. It was, and I was very much a Sega guy. Yeah. Um, came from like um. Mega Drive to the Genesis. I was just so brimming with pride that the Sega Jurassic <laughs> Park game was so much better than the Super Nintendo version. 
so a lot of listeners might not know this, but they were two entirely different games. For sure. One was like a side-scrolling platformer, and the other was like an open-world uh, mystery puzzle. Yeah, it was like a top-down mystery yeah. puzzle. It was like RPG-like view. Like you're looking down on the top of your character, yeah. moving around a three-dimensional world uh, with like puzzles and stuff. But the, that was Super Nintendo. Yeah. The Sega version was a side-scrolling action platformer where you could play as Grant or a Raptor. Yeah, the Raptor was cool. Boom! <laughs> yeah. But that's all you need, baby. Like, if you get to play the Jurassic Park game as a dinosaur and the Raptor, nonetheless, yeah. the dinosaur that is now the coolest dinosaur of all time that you didn't know was a dinosaur before Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's right. But it's like... It's like the T-Rex, but it's faster, smarter, sneakier, and has, like, a knife on its foot. <laughs> awesome as shit. So cool. And, like, when you fire it up, like, the Sega Genesis logo's there, and a little dinosaur pops up and goes, Sega! Like, <laughs> with the with the 16-bit, like, distortion on the voice. Like, it, for me, was like, I, I felt like we had the Super Nintendo kids checkmated with that. Yeah. I was like... Okay, your Aladdin port was slightly better than our Aladdin port, but <laughs> our Jurassic Park makes your Jurassic Park look like hot trash. And, like, at that time, that was a crucial win for me. Yeah. I, I felt like we kind of had Super Nintendo on the ropes. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember the, the Raptors looked super cool, too. Like, it, when, oh, when, dude, when it, it moved, was... when it ate the other animals and stuff, it was so good. Oh, dude, way awesome. The coolest. At the time, I mean, that was like 94 cool as you could get as far as video games go. You make an interesting point that the, the movie was hot. The logo was hot. Yeah. It was carrying a lot of weight, and it was it was, it was was still simmering. And then it almost feels like the second Jurassic Park movie cooled it off. <laughs> it did, man. Like, so, okay, I honestly don't think any of the other Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movies come anywhere near as good as the first one like i especially kind of hate the jurassic world movies i don't know if that's going to be like make me persona non grata on this podcast or not this is about the book like, man it's about the book <laughs> okay 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 i just feel like though since then it's just like not even close to capturing that magic not even close. i agree it had moments but uh you're right all i can say is it was a phenomenon. It did something it, unexplicable, and uh, and no film is going to do it again. I don't know that you can. It was really special. It changed the world in a way, at least how people looked at it, how people appreciated dinosaurs. It changed people's like career paths and stuff like that. I've heard all the time. It was significant, and it's hard to it's hard to explain because other movies don't do that. Like they don't. I really do think the Ghostbusters thing is like is like a. A, a pretty valid comparison sure like i think like that was an enormous cultural thing at the time and I, I think those come around you know once in a blue moon star wars is maybe a rare example of one that did successfully become a franchise mm -hmm. most of the time it's kind of like one and done i think ghostbusters was one i think jurassic park was another uh, I know you're very much also into the, the classical uh, monster movies and the Godzilla films and things like that. Uh, I've seen that you've put a tremendous amount of effort into explaining what's great about uh, some of the classic Japanese... Ka Kaiju oh, yes. is, the, is the genre of uh, kind of giant monster films. They really, really are just a Japanese phenomenon. You There, there have been examples of imitations from other countries north korea has one called Puljasari. uh there was this crazy story where kim jong uh i believe it was kim jong il at the time who's the guy now is it kim jong-un or kim jong-il i can't remember anymore who do we got over there today i think it's kim jong-un that sounds about right he's been out of the news well, i don't know <laughs> whoever his papa was yeah i think it was kim jong-il yeah uh, he was a big cinephile, and he had kidnapped uh, successful directors from other countries and forced them to make movies for North Korea, and one of them was a kaiju film called Pulchisari that was sort of like borderline communist propaganda, but also kind of feels like it's bad-mouthing communism at the same time. It's very okay. complex. But yeah, kaiju films, like the, the grandpappy of kaiju films is King Kong, 
And I think King Kong is kind of the shared ancestor for sure between that and Jurassic Park because Mm -hmm. you definitely feel some King Kong energy in Jurassic Park. There's sequences in that film where they go to this mysterious island filled with, you know, dinosaurs and it's incredible and it's Mm -hmm. just really high spectacle movie making. And I think that um, Jurassic Park, more than anything, feels like a... 1993 in like expansion of that sequence yeah but i still would not call jurassic park a kaiju movie by some people's reckoning anything with a large monster is a kaiju film okay but i really think there's more to it than that i think that those movies just have a different spirit to them it's jurassic park is it's 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 a action adventure science fiction horror movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's it's just not going to be really that comfortable under a kaiju umbrella yeah made by a guy um, that created a et right it's still got that kind of it's nerfed just enough that it, you can take your kids to it oh definitely yeah. yeah definitely interestingly like the american the first american godzilla film that movie had a load of pressure on it to imitate jurassic park mm-hmm. if you know that and go back and watch it it couldn't be more obvious but it's like the American version of Godzilla was basically an iguana T-Rex. Yeah. Like, he doesn't move, act, or... He, he doesn't really have anything in common with Godzilla. He, I don't even think he can breathe, like, the atomic breath or anything. And then on top of that, they needed to get raptors in it, basically. Yeah, yeah. And that's why they made Godzilla reproduce asexually. So then you can have mini-Godzillas everywhere mm-hmm. acting exactly like the raptors. Just do. like them, yeah. Yeah, so it was like... When that came out, the studios were like, well, we got the rights to Godzilla, but we've got zero faith in that in American audience. What we want is more Jurassic Park, so make Godzilla be more Jurassic Park. And yeah. that's what the movie ended up being. Mm-hmm. And famously, you know, it's a disaster. It's a completely <laughs> yeah. terrible film. Carnosaur is a much better movie. <laughs> I'm going to say with no qualifying statement, Carnosaur is just better <laughs> than that Godzilla movie. I think that's 1997, I think. It's 97, 98, I believe. But Something like that? Yeah. So the that, Godzilla film, it, it, it complete, yeah. complete garbage. And that's right around the same time that The Lost World comes out, and Spielberg also does. Uh, famously, he hijacks the last half of the, the, the film, changes the script, and inserts his ending that he wants, and that's uh, Tyrannosaurus running around San Diego. And that wasn't part of the plan for a long long time and then he came in and i guess at the last second uh inserted his spielberginess into it and that's what you get was there an homage there did you see that he had done anything especially well to to as a tribute to to these monster movies or did he do anything successfully there at all i think you can you can say it was somewhat successful Really what that does is it takes the monster and it puts it in, you know, this this kind of urban setting, mm-hmm. which is sort of Kaiju 101. And I also think that it's it's a way to, to kind of amp things up and say, you know, because before that, oh, Jurassic Park's scary. Guess what? I'm just not going to go to Jurassic Park. Boom, problem solved. Right. It's sort of the, it's sort of the Jason Voorhees thing, you know. Guess what? I'm not going to Camp Crystal Lake, and that's how I won't get murdered. Right. That's why, you know, there's part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan or whatever. Okay. It's the same type of idea. It's like, well, we got to find a way to make this, like, harrowing for those of you who aren't going to leave your neighborhood. So we're right. going to produce a movie where it can come to you, you know, type of an idea. And I think that's all well and good. I might not be in a position to talk at great length about Lost World because it's been a number of years since I've seen it. But I think that at that point, the movie was going to be whatever it was going to be. And I don't really think the ending helped it or hurt it, you know? <laughs> well, for what it's worth, I, like, I, I, I thought that it looked awesome. The idea of having a dinosaur in your backyard drinking out of your pool, I loved it. I grew up wishing for that sort of thing. Having yeah, it run down the street, I loved that. Uh, did it make sense in terms of like watching it as as anybody who follows the story instead of just following the dinosaurs? It didn't make a tremendous amount of sense, and it felt a little shoehorned in. But but maybe like, Spielberg wanted to do like the King Kong, the King Kong trope, and he doesn't really get to climb the tower. He doesn't. I mean, the dinosaur doesn't get to do a lot of the things you might have wanted. It didn't King Kong is so important that it it um, you fall in love with King Kong? Yeah. And then King Kong gets killed. And so it doesn't even... Like, I just wonder, is there is there a true homage there? 
I mean, I almost feel like it's closer to E.T. than it is King Kong. That could be, yeah. Because, like, the idea of seeing, like, the T-Rex drinking from your pool, like, that's sort of image like a little kid has or thinks about, you know? And E.T. is really about, like, yeah, we're in this urban, like, at that point, more like a suburban setting, and we have this, like, um, fantastical situation that's happening. Um, that That's kind of what that feels like more to me than, like, you know, the bustling downtown new york you got biplanes flying around that's a different energy yeah i'm not sure if that's just how spielberg tells you that kind of story or or not i remember liking it okay i remember thinking i was really happy to see jeff goldblum again Mm -hmm. you know i thought the focus on him was fun um he was kind of the cool guy to me who when i first saw the jurassic park movie i was pretty stressed out he wasn't gonna make it yeah um but he survives, and then he's back again. He's always wearing those black leather jackets because he's the cool scientist. Yeah. He doesn't even have glasses this time. He's even cooler, yeah. you know? So, yeah, I was happy to see that. Um, I think they're dusting all those old skeletons off and throwing them on camera again in one of the new ones, aren't they? Yeah, it should be interesting to see how they decide to incorporate that. There's something... Did you? So the new Ghostbusters, I loved it so much for the purpose that... And this is like, I don't want to say a low bar, but like it was so cohesive with the first Ghostbusters. It all tied together so meaningfully and purposefully that it, it, it gave you like the nostalgia and the homage, but at the same time moved things forward. And it worked in a lot of ways that I couldn't help but appreciate. And it wasn't because it was brilliant. It was just cohesive and they cleared that bar. They did it really well. Ghostbusters Afterlife does that. Bringing back characters for the point of just saying, hey, remember these guys? <laughs> I don't know. It's got to work. If that cohesion isn't there, it's just going to be jarring or it's going to be like, why? Or is this is this time well spent, you know, in, t- in terms of telling a, a meaningful story? And, you know, it's going to be about dinosaurs that run around. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I, to that point, I can't imagine them doing it well. Because bringing the Ghostbusters back could work. You know why? Because they're Ghostbusters. <laughs> so they might come back to bust ghosts because that's what they did. Yeah. But in Jurassic Park, they were just a bunch of scientists who kind of got hornswoggled and right. were pissed about it mm-hmm. and barely got out alive. How are you going to get that core group of unfortunate idiots together again mm-hmm. like all of them have already barely survived a couple times yeah like i think grant was back in jurassic park 3 and that had to suck for him so like <laughs> they're like hey you remember how we just barely didn't get eaten alive let's all go again it's like a high school reunion and now we're even more physically incapable of escape and mm-hmm. fighting back like it, it, there's just no scenario where that's going to make sense and i can't imagine a world where they are the specialists that they need to solve the problem when Jurassic World in canon has been an operating theme park for many years. There's been zoo handlers, there's been managers, there's been geneticists. The park has been under control. There are people who know the dinosaurs inside and out. And now, like, there are specialists who've worked with them for years. Bringing these people who just ran away from them isn't... I I just don't know how they are going to be necessary for an outcome. I just don't, I can't imagine. But maybe they'll surprise us. No, because they're not. Because <laughs> it's, it's bad. Because it's dumb. And like, <laughs> even worse, like, one of the things I hated about the first Jurassic World, I think it was the first, I think I've only seen the first one. I can't even, I don't know. I don't know. But mm-hmm. they had that dinosaur that was like a super dinosaur they made. Yeah. Because apparently we're all so stupid and like ravenous for yeah. the ex- extremes that dinosaurs aren't even fun anymore. Like mm-hmm. it can't even just be a dinosaur. It has to be like a super dinosaur. I'm sorry if, if you are making a movie about dinosaurs and you're convinced dinosaurs aren't exciting anymore, like maybe don't make the movie or guess what? It's on you. It's not my fault mm-hmm. that the dinosaurs aren't exciting. Yeah. Like, but also it's like, so they've got no experience with that. No. They don't know how to fight Super Dino. They don't know about that. And they're all like 70 years old. It's just, there's just no conceivable reason for that. <laughs> so that's just like a disaster waiting to happen. 
That's entirely true. I got one, one more Jurassic Park coattail ride movie that you all gotta get at. Yeah, let's hear it. And it is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tammy and the T Rex. Tammy and the T Rex. Tammy and the T Rex. It's the kind of movie where, in its own credits, the title is a typo, <laughs> <laughs> and it says Tammy and the T Rex, T A N N Y, instead of Tammy. Yes, so that's magic in and of itself. But Tammy and the T Rex is Denise Richards and Paul Walker. Yeah, and they're high schoolers, and Paul Walker has his brain put in the body of a like big cloned T Rex. So the T Rex is Paul Walker. Yeah, and it's running around having adventures, and Denise Richards is just desperate to make it work because bless her, she just loves him that much. She's gonna try to. <laughs> So you're going to try, their relationship has that kind of fortitude that they can survive him now being a dinosaur. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, the problem was that her, her mother told her, you can never date a dinosaur. And yeah, so, and so now look what happens, yeah, parents. There you go. <laughs> be careful. You got to be Think careful with the, the barriers you put up are the ones that we tear down, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She made her a dino lover. But, so Tammy and the T-Rex, it has an r-rated gory cut that was like lost for a long time really recently i think it was vinegar syndrome i believe which is one of the um distribution companies i mentioned earlier put it out on 4k blu-ray <laughs> the the gory cut and if you don't think i pre-ordered that the minute it went live <laughs> you don't know me my friends um, you got to check it out. Tammy and the T-Rex. Um, I think it's, it's a good example of like the Jurassic Park frenzy spawning something truly gonzo and nonsensical, right? which is what I want the most in a movie. Um, highly recommended. I've seen people talk about it. I don't know that I've, I've seen trailers. I don't know that I've watched, I'll do it. There you go. <laughs> I can't wait to see that. <laughs> Let me know what you think. Well, if there were anything else, what do you think? I guess I'll let your family go. All right. Well, we've had an amazing journey through the savagery of genetically engineered dinosaurs. Did you have fun? Yeah, man. Had a great time. Uh, thanks for having me on. So Christoph has satisfied his requirements for appearing on my show, and I can let listeners now know that, in fact, I have counter-abducted his family and have been holding on to them until he guests on the show, so... We can release the prisoners. And uh, now that you're free of any coercion, you're you're free to answer truthfully. Would you come back and do this again, Tammy and oh, the T Rex? Yeah, man. yeah, definitely. All right. I might not. I might not if you let my family go. <laughs> keep um, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep them locked up. They've been they've been stopping me from doing really ridiculous shit. So with them <laughs> out of the way. But no, uh, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, anytime. This is amazing. Well, um, my merciful guest. Christoph Oaks from the band Snail, who does all our music for this, and uh, who I expect will be releasing my family from captivity. You've been terrific. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks you, man. Have a good one. All right, let's switch to the text. Today we've got the first iteration and almost paradise. We've got two textual elements to cover in this episode, beginning with the first iteration and following with almost paradise, spanning from pages 9 to 15. As a synopsis, uh, first iteration says, quote, at the earliest drawings of the fractal curve, few clues to the underlying mathematical structure will be seen. And that's quoted by Ian Malcolm on page nine. Though I can't confirm it's expressly stated, I feel like these quotes at the beginning of each of the iterations are from the paper that Malcolm prepared for Hammond, outlining why Jurassic Park would fail, which he hands out to everyone in the helicopter ride to Isla Nublar on page 73. Let's see if we can pay attention, and while we go through our deep read, maybe we can come to a conclusion on how these iterations are connected to the story and maybe we can find the name of malcolm's paper too i don't know then we move on to almost paradise pages 11 to 15 in july 1989 the bowman family mike ellen and tina visit remote beach during a two-week holiday according to guidebooks cabo blanco was unspoiled wilderness almost a paradise on page 11 the bowmans squabble as they reach the isolated pristine white beach and tina runs off to get away from her parents incessant bickering and discovers a strange lizard that bites her. Which characters do we meet? We've got Mike Bowman. Mike Bowman is 36 and is a real estate developer and father from Dallas, Texas. 
He discredits one-ups and dominates his wife at almost every opportunity, and he puts his foot down on her plastic surgery hopes. She questions if they're going the right way, and he insists, trust me, I'm right. When his daughter asks, was that a monkey? He says, it's a squirrel monkey. When Ellen says she feels overweight, he thinks she's too thin. Ellen asks if Tina's safe running away at a deserted beach, and Mike responds, oh, for God's sakes, to her continued worrying. And to end her conversation, he responds firmly. There are no snakes on the sand. Quote, believe me, there's no snakes on the beach on page 13. He feels like a hero when he finds the beach. And then, I mean, they fight about everything. He's, uh, he, he doesn't find a lot of common ground with his wife here. His wife is Ellen Bowman. Ellen Bowman is 30 and is a mother and Texan who conceived this trip as a ruse to have inexpensive plastic surgery in San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica. She's deceptive, plodding, insecure with her appearance, and heavily invested in having a, quote, westernized concept of beauty. That's not quoted from the book, just I mean that in, like, air quotes. She was homecoming queen in her senior year at Rice, a Houston-based university less than 10 years earlier. She presses under her eyes with a sad sigh at the mention of beauty. Is it conceited or self-interested? that someone might be talking about beautiful scenery, but she's thinking about personal beauty instead. She frets out loud about, quote, getting this weight off after changing into her bathing suit. She feels unsafe, vulnerable. If anything goes wrong, they're far from help. She can't see Tina, and that makes her worry. She's living in not quite fear, but certainly discomfort. She isn't enjoying herself. And of course, they have Christina L. Tina Bowman, Tina Bowman is eight, the Texan daughter of Ellen and Mike Bowman. Tina needs space from her parents and disregards her mother as well, not returning to put sunscreen on, though she knows she should. Perhaps a function of listening to her father second-guess everything. She doesn't want to go back and hear her mother talk about losing weight, corroborating that she has adopted her father's perspective. We'll see parental perspectives ingrained in the daughters later in the novel with Lex berating Tim, just as his father might. She's at first very excited to find a new lizard. She wiggles her fingers back at the compi, which is kind of awesome, and she wants to attract it, considers it like a pet, and doesn't have any food for it. She hopes to befriend the animal, so she speaks to it. <laughs> she doesn't have food for it. She is the food. And uh, the lizard, which we will later find out is a compi, but uh, it's just called the lizard for now. The lizard chirps, leaving three-toed bird-like tracks in the sand. It stands on its hind legs, balancing on its thick tail. It's almost a foot tall, is dark green with brown stripes along its back and has tiny front legs ending in little lizard fingers that wiggle in the air. It's cute, quote, sort of like a big salamander, says Tina. It walks and bobs its head like a chicken. It's fearless, and it attacks. We have a couple different localities. We have Costa Rica, famous for its birds, with three times as many birds as all of America and Canada. Cabo Blanco Biological Reserve. On the west coast of Costa Rica, Cabo Blanco is a two-mile crescent of white sand, utterly deserted, fringed by palm trees. The ocean was warm, and there was hardly any surf at all. There are gnarled tangles of mangrove roots, which create a barrier from leaving the beach and entering into the jungle. There are bird tracks in the sand, and Cabo Blanco is Spanish for white cape. And we have San Jose, the capital of Costa Rica, where there is good medical care, like inexpensive plastic surgery. So what plot points do we have here? We got a couple different items. A plot point here that we get that's important uh, is that there are biting lizards. There's a strange, unidentified lizard biting tourists in Costa Rica. A couple literary techniques. Again, Michael Creighton uses italics to provide emphasis to a sentence or expression. Uh, on page 12, there's, look! Tina shrieks to encourage everyone that she's seen a wild animal. And uh, Ellen says, honestly, I don't know how in italics I'm going to get this weight off rhetorically, though with enough emphasis that we can legitimately read into it that the weight or her figure is in fact a worrisome concern of hers. And Crichton uses a cliffhanger. Intrigue is terrifically employed with the use of a cliffhanger to end the chapter. They heard their daughter's voice. She was screaming. It's hard to stop reading then and there, isn't it? There are some literary techniques that Crichton employs. Crichton isn't especially poetic, and often the metaphors he uses are old cliches or dead metaphors which have lost their meaning. Hugging the edge of a cliff is the road on page 11, and that's a fairly common description of a road. And, quote, filled his ear with a continued persuasive effort is another common colloquialism. He's not endeavoring to bring a new colorful imagery to the story with the application of stylistic techniques here. In fact, he's even employed the cliché, put his foot down to end an argument or have a final say. 
there's some dramatic subtext. Uh, he's employed this to show, not tell, the reader details about his characters, which is great. Upon seeing that the wilderness is, quote, beautiful, Ellen sighs and looks at herself in the mirror, un uh, pressing under her eyes, implying she genuinely doesn't like how aging is affecting her looks. We got some similes. Mike Bowman felt like a hero when he finally reached the beach. A sloth, quote, looked like a Muppet character and seemed as harmless. The lizard is cute, quote, sort of like a big salamander, and it bobs its head like a chicken as it walks. So those are a bunch of similes. Very easy to relate to these things. They're straightforward. They do a sufficient job relating clearly what Crichton intended to mean. He's adequately using simile to good effect. We have a rhetorical question. Did sloths make a chirping sound? Tina didn't think so. This is kind of a, a way to draw out suspense. I guess he uses that all right. And Crichton continues to use rhetorical questions for similar purposes to having a, quote, worry wart in the script so he can raise tension and build suspense. If it's not a sloth, what else might it be chirping in the bush? Let's find out. Once again, before we wrap our episode today, a, a giant, huge thank you to Christoph Oaks from Snail. That's the guy that does all the songs. He was a terrific guest. He brought so much information on, on the film industry and, and, and on campy movies. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. He's a genius. And thanks to you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Cavers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also about that too. Until next time. I used to worry about what people would say, but then nobody said anything.